The Guardian. Welcome to this week's Sydney Siege Inquest recap. I'm Bridie Jabor. And I'm Michael Safi. Michael has spent Monday down at the, the Siege Inquest as it enters its second week after resumption. So what was happening down there? Well, uh, in the hot seat again was this DPP solicitor who we saw uh, shreds torn off on Friday. And it was a resumption of that today, basically. It was, um, you know, this sort of line of, of barristers getting up and grilling, I guess, every aspect of this solicitor's practice, um, how they uh, how they kind of kept records, uh, how they conducted Monis's bail hearing, and the kind of overarching story here is that this solicitor is the person who ran Monis's uh, bail hearing a year before the siege, after Monis had been charged with being an accessory before and after the fact to murder. And among the kind of apparent errors that we heard about today was that the the solicitor was accused of not understanding the bail laws around Monis's charge. And so when the magistrate asked this solicitor, um, what, does the, you know, what does the law say about bail in this case? The solicitor replied, well, you know, in this case, it's neutral. When in reality, as was argued today, uh, the charge that Monis had allegedly committed actually required exceptional circumstances in order to um, be released on bail. And had the magistrate told that, the bar would have been higher for Monis to clear. Is that the fault of the legislation as well? Because we, we have had a reform to the Bail Act and one of the reasons we had the reform to the Bail Act was because it hadn't been properly updated since the 70s and instead had all these amendments on it that actually contradicted each other. Had they simply not read it properly or was it the fault of confusing amendments? I mean, in this case, it was uh, actually a case law. It was a precedent that had established that being an accessory to murder was the equivalent of having actually murdered someone as far as bail went. But you are right in the sense that apparently this solicitor had not read this case. Um, but, you know, I should say that uh, they were kind of very adamant that they were actually correct in their inter interpretation. So they and didn't concede today that that was an incorrect absolutely interpretation? Absolutely not. No, they, they were saying that, you're, you know, you're wrong about this. And actually, the way I interpreted this legislation, you know, two years ago now um, was actually correct. You know, whether, I mean, the kind of point, though, was, was the sort of state of mind they had at the time. You know, it doesn't, I suppose it doesn't really matter who is correct. But what, what, what we do know is that at the, at the time, this DPP solicitor, you know, did think that the uh, legislation or that the case law said something. And now we're hearing pretty compelling arguments that actually it may have said something else entirely. And so the solicitor was grilled on last week and on Friday by counsel assisting Jeremy Gormley. It sounds like Monday has been spent with questions from the barristers acting for other parties. Yes. In this case, for Tory Johnson and Katrina Dawson and the police. and Precisely, yeah. yeah. Did you have any observations about particular lines of questioning from those barristers or what they were trying to dig at or was anyone out there for a particularly long time? Well, I must say there was a lot of repetition today because I think what the, law, what the kind of barristers for, uh, you know, for Johnson, for Dawson, etc. trying to do is really drill into kind of who made the mistakes here. And I'm not sure why, I'm not sure if that's to sort of preface an action later on down the track, but you know, nonetheless, that's what they were doing. And so what we saw was really a far more aggressive line than I think um, counsel assisting Jeremy Gormley would ordinarily take. Um, we had Gabrielle uh, Bashir, who is, I, I believe, acting for Tory uh, Johnson, um, you know, accused this solicitor of having, the quote here is, fundamental misunderstanding of the law. Uh, Bashir also laid out this kind of litany of errors the solicitor had made, and you know, if you bear with me, here, here they are. That it's that the solicitor missed the fact that Monis was on bail for postal offences when they, you know, allegedly contributed to this murder. 
Um, the fact they failed to provide evidence that Monis was a flight risk. Uh, they failed to draw upon the fact that there was a police officer, Melanie Staples, sitting in the courtroom that day who knew all this information about Monis but was never asked to actually provide any of this expertise. And that's, that's just three of a whole range of problems that we found out. I've watched Mashi with interest because, um, have you noticed this as well? I do notice that she gets up and does a very thorough cross-questioning of almost every witness that, that has been up there. And I see her speaking a lot more and asking a lot more questions than Dawson's barrister. This isn't a reflection on Dawson Barrister's performance. No, it's a style then, thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a style thing. I've just been very interested to see how involved she has been in this and how she's very detail-oriented and, and very thorough. And I expect also working with Dawson's barrister as well, otherwise there would be a double-up of questions. But she's been one of the personalities I think to come out in the past week and a half who wasn't there in the first segment. I think you're right and I think uh, what a lot of people in the media room were noticing was the way in which she will smile at this witness when she's about to ask a particularly devastating question and so yeah she definitely has has managed to kind of carve a profile out but you are right that um, you know she's the most vocal barristers sort of we've seen so far um, I think are sort of there's Dr. Ian Freckleton, who's appearing for the New South Wales Police, and then also uh, Bashir for Johnson's family, as well as the DPP's um, solicitor, which I guess reflects the fact that they're really the main players in this. It's the police, it's the victims, and it's the DPP. And so who was uh, the, the winners and losers of, of Monday? I start with losers. I think, I think the losers have to be this, this poor DPP solicitor who... Is, is getting, you know, as I said, is getting shreds torn off them. Um, you know, I, I was sitting there thinking, if someone was to turn this level of scrutiny onto the way that I work or onto the way that anyone really works, I mean, I think it would be absolutely devastating. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm at the moment... Especially for one event. We, d we don't know what this solicitor is like in every other case and how they perform in court usually. They're going off one tiny portion of their work it, w it would be quite a difficult thing to go through exactly and I mean you know this particular this this kind of modest case the solicitor ran you know a year and a half ago now must have been a blip in their memory I mean they like and now they're having to go back and justify they threw out the notes they thought that it wasn't not I wouldn't use the word unimportant but yeah a blip on their radar they had so many other cases to deal with is such a bigger workload that Absolutely. Just, I doubt that they had thought about it again, you know, the next, the day after. And, and now there's, you know, now there's an extremely accomplished, well-paid barrister asking questions like, you know, why didn't you print out this email that you got in November 2013? Or, you know, why didn't you keep that record? And they're having to justify why. And, and often they can't. And now, you know, after kind of nearly two days of pretty intensive questioning, we're getting answers like, I don't know, or simply kind of lying down and saying, you know, look, I agree with what you're saying. And so it's, it's honestly, it's tough to watch. And who was the winner of the day? Look, the winner, you know, I don't think anyone was a major standout, but I think, you know, we, can I say that, that those of us having to kind of watch every minute of this were the winners by the fact that there was a kind of brief interlude in the middle of the day where um, uh, Associate Professor Muhammad Abdullah came and spoke. He's a, an expert in Islam from um, Griffith University. And he came and basically uh, gave us an insight into, um, you know, how connected Monis was to the Muslim communities in, in sort of New South Wales and the country as a whole. The answer was, you know, not very. Um, the other kind of fascinating thing he had to say was um, about these religious ranks that Monis had supposedly attained. So he would go around calling himself a sheikh, a hojat al-Islam and an ayatollah. And, you know, there's a kind of question mark hanging over a few of these and... You know, Abdullah said that, you know, based on his research, it was very unlikely that Monas, for example, was a sheikh because he said that, you know, in, if things are working kind of properly in a community, 
Um, a sheikh is someone who generally has to be kind of in their 50s. They're sort of very accomplished. You know, everyone basically agrees this person deserves the title. But he did note that what's been happening lately is you end up with kind of lay people or kind of backyard imams who are going around calling themselves sheikhs. And I guess Monas profited from the fact that that title perhaps isn't worth um, what, it, what it once was. Um, and is it also moving into these uh, more westernised countries as well? You know, if someone tried to go around uh, a country like Australia saying they were a bishop, a Catholic bishop, they get pulled up pretty quickly. But it's also this migrant culture, I guess, where we're quite ignorant and the media is dominated by white people and Australians. And so they just say shake because he says he's a shake and they don't understand it or do any further investigation into it. So I think that's a factor as well. That's yeah, what creates these backyard I think you're absolutely right. Well. And, and I think it's also true that kind of, you know, these communities might come to Australia and there aren't the kind of established sort of um, academies or kind of, you know, cleric training colleges where you really have to kind of, you know, if you're going to call yourself a, an Ayatollah in Iran, if that means you would have gone to certain schools, it means people would know, you know, what your kind of intellectual lineage is. And people would just laugh you out of the room if you tried to do that in Iran as well. You know, they know. Exactly. And so what can we expect to see on Tuesday at the inquest? So on Tuesday, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from um, this DPP solicitor. But the, I think the other person uh, to watch for is this uh, second DPP solicitor that I've talked about, the one who represented Monis in um, October 2014, so two months before the siege. Because, you know, as much as this DPP solicitor has had a really hard time, in fact, the expert bail panel that reviewed all of Monis's appearances found that this solicitor had actually done okay and that it was the October 2014 solicitor who had kind of perhaps stuffed up. And so if this solicitor is having this much of a hard time, I can only imagine what um, you know, this next unfortunate soul is going to face. Well, that does sound like it's going to get even more interesting. Do join us again for the next Sydney Siege Inquest recap podcast. Just search Sydney Siege on iTunes and subscribe. Or go to theguardian.com forward slash au. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.